Hello and welcome to the March 21st, 2021 uh, episode of The Vegetable Beat. This is a live weekly roundtable discussion during the growing season for vegetable producers in the Great Lakes and Midwest regions. The show is put on by the Great Lakes Vegetable Producers Network, which is a group of extension educators and researchers from across the Great Lakes region and more. We broadcast live via Zoom at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time, 11.30 a.m. Central Time, every Wednesday from the first week of March to the first week of September, and we interview farmers, researchers, and others about topics uh, very relevant to vegetable growers. My name is Matt Kleinhens. I'm with The Ohio State University, and I will serve as the session host this week. Michael Reinke uh, with Michigan State University is our Zoom engineer and the person who made it possible for all of us to connect today. You will also hear from Michael two times during the course of the session. The first is about right now, when he will post a poll um, asking a, a small number of questions about your interests and background. And the second time will be later in the session when he asks you about what you've heard and its likely impact on your operation. So please do um, respond to those polls as well. Six people representing four universities in the Great Lakes and Midwest regions uh, take turns hosting these weekly sessions and each host is joined by one or more guest technical experts. Today, it is my pleasure to speak with Dr. Judd Reed of Cornell University regarding key timely aspects of high tunnel production. Many of you know that Judd has served as an extension vegetable specialist with Cornell University since 2005, with the base of his activity located in the Finger Lakes region of New York, south of and roughly midway between Syracuse and Ross, Rochester. And if you happen to know this area, you know that it is an area with a substantial amount of high tunnel production activity. Judd addresses many issues in the, in the broad topic areas of crop and variety selection and cultural management, and his extension and outreach uh, program is very widely respected. So I am very pleased to have him with us today to discuss two important topics. Specifically, starting the new high tunnel production season well and year-round high tunnel use. But before we get to those topics, I have just a very small bit of background. A reminder to those of you who are attending live before we turn to discussion and Q&A. If you are online, you can submit questions to the Q&A box and you can upvote other people's questions as well. We will address questions as well as we can as we go along without interrupting, uh, disrupting conversation too much, but we will also leave other questions to the Q&A portion of the program, which is roughly the back half of the program. We also welcome phone-in questions, so don't hesitate to share them with us as well. So with that bit of background, uh, let's, hear, let's hear from Judd. Um, Judd, you and I, as, as we talk, we're gonna have a bit of a conversation around these two topics of, of uh, starting the high tunnel production season as well as possible, and also the, for some, the importance of, of uh, using the high tunnel year round. So just to kind of start us off, you know, my perspective is that, is that there are literally tens of thousands of high tunnels on our landscape uh, that are already, already functioning and there are more installed every year. So go back maybe a month to six weeks in time. If you were able to peer into all of those high tunnels at one time, um, about what proportion of them do you think would be in a, would be fallow, what proportion would have been in a cash crop? What proportion might have been in a cover crop? Um, roughly, roughly those three categories. What what would be your your estimates there? Well, that's a great question, Matt. And uh, before I get any further into this, everyone in the audience should be aware that uh, 
that Professor Kleinheads could equally be uh, answering these questions as well as answering them. So he's playing the part here of interviewer, but he's, I want to recognize his, uh, his depth of experience in this subject matter too. So it's, uh, it's an honor to be a part of this, Matt. Thank you. Um, so if, if to look at those tunnels, let's say, yeah, um, late February, early March, and say what percentage are in cover crop, a cash crop, and that cash crop would probably be spinach or some other type of greens or just totally fallow. Um, being in New York, I have more of a Northeast orientation uh, and there is a very high percentage of high tunnels here that do grow a, a, a winter vegetable crop. And again, it's greens. Uh, and in many ways, the, 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 the sector or production uh, within high tunnels is divided between those people who really care about summer production and those who really care about winter production. And if I were to make that first cut, um, I would probably say it is somewhere in the 40-60 mark. And I the winter production of greens at around um, maybe 40% of the total, just, to, just my guesstimate. And then, so then I can answer the question about cover crops uh, because the people who are growing spinach are not growing cover crops in the wintertime. Um, that is your summertime growers that are, have the opportunity to grow a winter crop, cover crop. I'm going to guess right now we're somewhere around maybe 15% of those uh, are in uh, a cover crop. The rest of them are going to be fallow, just, just bare ground. Yeah. Yeah. Fair yeah. estimates. And I'm sure that, you know, people who are listening in or, you know, looking at their own high tunnel as we speak, uh, Maybe checking in from the right tunnel or sure. looking in through the through, through the uh, kitchen window, um, you know they have their own perspective on what would be common for their farm and certainly uh, maybe others around them. But um, that forty sixty split that you mentioned makes it seem as if very few people, uh, or maybe I'd need to follow follow up and ask with the same yes. people who are growing uh, the spinach or, and other leafies that uh, can tolerate the winter conditions in your area, are they following that with the summertime crop? So are they essentially year round users? They are, yep, yeah, Matt. They're 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 um, going to take that that greens crop uh, again in my part of the world uh, probably through April, the month of April, and then come in with a fruiting vegetable or a suite of vegetables, uh, tomatoes, of course, being by far the largest, but cucumbers, peppers, maybe eggplants as well in that space. And since they're so dedicated to greens, uh, and they take those as deep as they can into the spring then their summer crop is shorter than the real hardcore tomato growers, which are planting tomatoes now. So in, right. in right. research tunnels um, this week, we're having tomatoes go in the ground. So uh, about probably March 18th or 19th, we'll, we'll have one of our early tomato trials planted here. I think that's very, very prescient what you said first, you know, the, the high tunnel community, at least, you know, as we perhaps uh, have windows on it. The high tunnel community appears to be divided in, into the, the group that says, well, we're main season for, for the most part, main season only. And in many cases, that might mean tomato. And then the other community, other part of that group that says, no, we're going to try to make use of the high tunnel year round. Yeah. Uh, in your experience, um, does a person start out as one or the other, as in one or other of those camps, or do they kind of grow into one, uh, you know, take, to, take part in one uh, over time? Um, <clears throat> I would guess it is, it is the former there. So I think they, they get into this for one of those, those two purposes. And 
I'll be generalizing here a little bit, which is always sure. Yeah, yeah. As you, as you know, but um, the the greens growers um, are going to be by necessity people who have a winter market, and sure. so who has winter markets? It tends to be people with a CSA or community supported agriculture. Um, or some other direct relationship with their consumer. Maybe it's a wintertime uh, farmer's market. Um, it could be a, a, the restaurant trade, for example, uh, as well. But so those wintertime growers, their market really is probably hopefully in mind before they choose to be that winter grower. Um, now the, the summertime growers, since almost everyone is a summertime grower, even if you're a wintertime grower, they're they're going to be a little bit more diverse and they are going to include wholesale growers. Um, and I know this is true in, in, in your state of Ohio, Matt, that that includes a lot of what we call plain set growers. So mm-hmm. um, Mennonite people that would grow for produce auctions, which are wholesale environments. And that wholesale um, market is very different from the retail market and that there's more fluctuations. And it also probably means that there's actually highs uh, early on for wholesale uh, tomatoes. And so high tunnels fit that group very well um, for that reason, because they can experience uh, excellent prices early on and tunnels work well there. Excellent points. Yeah, excellent points. There's a question that came in from, uh, from a listener that I think it might be a good idea to try to address now. And the question is, are the tomatoes that are being planted or any warm season crop for that matter, it could be, could be pepper, it could be other ones, but um, are the, are the warm season crops being planted into high tunnels now, say mid, mid to late March, are they going into primarily heated tunnels or do you, uh, I mean, what's the breakdown there heated versus unheated tunnels? Uh, in my case, just for a quick, quick mention, I've never heated a high tunnel. Um, I did it one time experimentally. That's the only, uh, only time um, just to, just as a look see. Um, and so in my, in my scope of work, I'm always going into an unheated high top, but what's been your experience or perspective there? Well, yeah, a March planting where I am definitely requires heat. Um, and so, yeah, we will, we will have uh, forced air heat in, in, in my research tunnels, it's with propane uh, uh, forced air and the set point, in other words, to what temperature are we heating uh, varies, but it's, um, it's an interesting question because when high tunnels really started flourishing maybe a decade ago or, or, or more now, the concept was to do this without heat. Right. Um, yes. And that's, you know, I think one of the arguments of sustainability or uh, uh, the real benefits of high tunnels is that we see a lot of the benefits of greenhouse production, but we don't have the tremendous energy inputs into it. And over time, I've seen that that definition has probably faded or blurred a little bit. And increasingly I do see people, adding heat. Now, one of the challenges is uh, it's fairly simple to heat the air inside of one of these uh, these tunnels. It's not as easy to heat the soil. And my observation is that there are real challenges to uh, plant health when a transplant goes into a soil that may be in the 40s or 50s, excuse me, and your your ambient temperature, your temperature in the air is going to be, it could be daytime highs in the seventies on a sunny day. Um, and I'm, I'm beginning to think that's not such a great idea for crop health right now. That's a fantastic segue into what's on my mind next based on, based on uh, listening to what you, what you have to say here is that, uh, that community of people who are using a high tunnel, whether it's they're going, going into it now, you know, for their main season crop after having been fallowed or, 
uh, left in a cover crop, if you will, and those who are still generating revenue from the tunnel, okay? Um, presumably, if they're generating revenue, this is a cold tolerant crop, perhaps no need to heat it. If they're going into a warm season crop, it may benefit from heat. But to your point, the air, soil, air and soil temperature differential uh, has me curious as, as well about its impact on, on those warm season crops, especially if we were to layer in the temperature of the irrigation water that's being used. I know that um, well, I've spoken with um, one, of your, one of your Cornell colleagues about this very same thing. I think she's working in the eastern part of the state where a group of growers are very interested in this question as well. You know, do we need to heat our irrigation water? Maybe that's not a thread we want to take off and run with here, but um, would there be signs of trouble, so to speak, uh, or, or steps that a grower could take to help themselves understand if they need to address this soil, soil temperature offhand? That's a, that's a great question. Um, I do want to take a step back. I think you made an interesting point that there's some people that are harvesting right now with zero heat inputs, right? So they're still getting yeah. or, or, right. or different greens out of there. And again, here in New York, we have people who do that in a, in a zone four, believe it or not, mm-hmm. supplemental heat. Yeah. Um, so it can be done. Um, and it's, um, it's, uh, it's really encouraging to see people doing it in, in very cold areas. Um, so what can growers do or what can they look for to, to see that maybe there's some issues here? Number one is, is can you take the temperature of your soil? Um, that would be the first thing I would want to do is watch that temperature. Um, a, a cold soil or, or a wet soil is going to be a cold soil in general as well uh, because of the amount of heat energy it's going to take to raise the temperature of the, the water within that soil. So drainage, I think, is actually one of the keys to temperature management for early season tomatoes. How how well drained is that high tunnel? Not just inside, but outside as well. And so does the the moisture that's collected on the roof in a rain event or any other time, does that have the opportunity to move out instead of in? Um, Those are some, some things to think about initially. How much lead time can the grower have between shaping a bed and fitting it uh, for example, if you're using uh, plastic mulch as a film to cover your beds, can you do that process a week or two ahead of transplanting so that there's some opportunity for that contact between uh, the plastic mulch and the soil to, to warm the soil versus doing that in the course of one or two days, and there's probably very little soil warming going on. Uh, so that's that's something to think about. Now, in our work, we're trying to introduce cover crops into this whole uh, uh, concept. And if you have cover crops, now you have to think about if I want to fit the soil, lay the mulch, allow the soil to warm for a week or two, I have to be able to terminate and incorporate a cover crop additionally a few weeks before this whole process. Uh, so it, it requires a lot of mindfulness uh, of the calendar. And now you have to time a set of transplants to match up to all of those processes that you're involved in. Um, yeah, those are some of my thoughts on it. Excellent. I mean, there, <laughs> there's quite a bit to, to explore there. There's no doubt about it. Um, Judd, as I, as I continue to listen to what you're saying and think about the two communities that you mentioned up front, those who are essentially looking forward to their main season crop without having had a winter time or you know, late, late winter, early spring one, and those who are still in their late, se- late winter, early spring crop and then looking forward to their main season crop, um, 
taking maybe one those camps one at a time. Are there special considerations in your view for what each of them are, you know, would, would benefit from taking, uh, you know, taking uh, a close look at at this time of year? So for those people who are coming out of fallow and maybe a cover crop and they're looking forward to getting that, that warm season crop established, they have to look at A, B, and C. For the people who are still harvesting and marketing, you know, and they're totally comfortable with the idea of planting that warm season crop later, what challenges might they, or, you know, issues might they want to face just in a broad stroke? I realize we're generalizing here, yeah, but we have, you know, we do have potentially two, you know, groups of listeners, as you say, who are looking at their own tunnel and saying, well, you know, it's fallow or a cover crop and I want to get my tomatoes in, or I'm still pulling spinach or lettuce or whatever it might be, but I'm looking forward to that warm season crop because I've seeded it yesterday. Um, You know, what, uh, what maybe some are the special considerations that they might want to pay mind pay mind to? Uh, great question, and and you asked me to to maybe tackle them in, in those two different camps. So I'll start with the um, with the winter greens group. I think one thing I would encourage them to look at would, as as they approach this transition would be uh, pest populations uh, because they have created what we call a green bridge um, from one crop to the other. Uh, there's been no disruption. Uh, for example, aphids. Uh, aphids uh, uh, do just fine in winter high tunnels, and they would uh, appreciate a new home in the springtime as well. Um, once uh, tomatoes or cucumbers, in particular, or pepper, I would I would encourage those growers to do a, do an assessment right now. Where where are you with your pest populations? Do I need to manage those now? Uh, what can I do to manage those now before I go into this next crop? Now I'm a bit tomato centric. I'll admit that. Um, one of the reasons being is that I think tomatoes have the the, the larger uh, potential to contribute to economically to the farm. And so for that reason, I would remind people that losing that crop to to pests is probably going to be a bigger impact than any loss that you're going to see in the winter time. So anyway, I, I would just encourage people to look at that that pest population as you make that transition. Um, the other real challenge I see in that transition of greens to a summer crop is there's almost no time to uh, make soil amendments. You often talk, growers oftentimes are spinning those two crops within a couple of days. And so that greens crop may come out and the soil may be flipped in a sense, quite literally, and then tomatoes go in. And was there time there to make an adjustment? to say soil pH levels with, with an amendment of some type. Um, other nutrients, macronutrients, secondary nutrients, did you have time to make those adjustments? Did you see some type of problem that really needed to be adjusted around drainage? Uh, and do you have time to do that? An even more challenging situation is sometimes a greens grower will begin to pop tomato transplants within an existing greens bed that's being harvested. So in that case, you actually had zero days to do something uh, of benefit to that soil. And so I guess I would encourage those green growers to to pump the brakes between those two crops, assess where you are with your soil in particular. What's the best way to do that? It's with a soil test Um, and and see that you have the time to make changes that you need to. Um, Those are those are a couple of the big ones for the for the greens growers. Um, for the tomato grower, I would say um, the, the, or the, again, the summer focused grower, right. 
Right. Those changes that I talked about for the greens grower happening in a day or two, the, the summertime grower has no excuse. Those adjustments, those changes should have taken place in the fall. If you didn't get them done in the fall, get them done now. And so there's a, there's a great saying, I don't know who, who it was, but it's the, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. Right. And the second last best time is today. So in other words, Yes, you should have done this before, but it's still important enough to do it now to even though you're late. I, I, I like that phrase and that applies here as well. So if you did not get your soil management in place, and oftentimes I'm talking about pH, talking about some macronutrients, if you didn't do that in the fall when you should have do that now, uh, you may have a week or two left or a month depending on your schedule to do that now. Those are, those are some of the things I would encourage the, the summertime growers to think about um, trying to think of some of the other common mistakes I, I see happening. Uh, it may sound silly, but have all your, your supplies in place now. Um, I don't think it's a good use of people's time during the growing season to be scrambling for answers on uh, where am I going to get trellis material? Where am I going to get crop inputs, whether that's uh, crop protection or pest control or your fertilizers? You should have that fertilizer plan in place now in my mind, you should have those inputs lined up now so that you're not pressed to make decisions at a time where really uh, the farmer is, uh, they don't have uh, free time oftentimes during the growing season. Now's the time to have those decisions made. Right on. What, what, uh, what you said here recently prompts me to think that there really is no, tr- well, if there is off time for a high tunnel grower, it's actually pretty brief because if you stop and think about it, if you if you're familiar with you know maybe have an experience have experience with growing outside without a cover under the open sky, when it's raining and snowing or wherever your location happens to be, there is a genuine period of time when you genuinely are unable to do field work, right? But not so much in a high tunnel. It's actually there and available to you to soil test, to amend, um, to make occasionally make some internal drainage improvements and the like. Um, and so that, that off time that I know that many people crave, you know, between the two main seasons and the wrap up of the fall, that off time in a high tunnel situation can actually be fairly short. And it's the folks who somehow turn around their, their main season crop, warm season crop into a fall one that somehow find, found the secret sauce, so to speak, of being able <laughs> to keep moving uh, year round. What, what, uh, if you had to speculate, what, what do you think that secret sauce would include, you know, because we're here and now in March, but this conversation could happen in the fall as well, as we think about when to take out that warm season crop and put in a fall, so, so-called fall one or winter one. What do you think that secret sauce would include for the, for the people who are able to keep it going through the year? You mentioned market up front. That's a really, really yeah. important one. Um, and so, yeah, if there's a market draw, you know, a market pull, they, they might just be able to do it. But is there something else that you see going on that makes it possible for some people to do it? Boy, yeah, if I could, if I could bottle that secret sauce, I'd, I'd be a millionaire. Um, <laughs> uh, I think it's an, interesting, um, it's an interesting question. I think one of the, the keys to that success is probably – this might surprise you to hear me say this, but it's probably to prioritize the wintertime crop. And uh, a part of it is, is not very secret at all, which is that planting date for the winter crop has uh, an outrageous 
level of effect on the, the yield and the health of that winter crop. Uh, and our colleague, uh, Liz Maynard, uh, yeah. did great work where she showed a planting date of your, let's say spinach in the fall, every day that you move back based on a certain date, depending on where you are, you end up losing up to a week of harvest before you get to harvest that crop. And so where I am, that date is somewhere between probably September 20th and October 5th. And if you miss that, if you're outside of that window, particularly on the late side, you go past October 5th, the impact on your winter crop um, is, is, is quite literally exponential in terms of how your yield is affected. Um, so I think the real success is paying attention to that date. Now, that is less true, I find, with a summer crop. Yes, it's good to be early and um, uh, it's probably going to help you in a number of ways to have the exact right planting date for your tomatoes. But in the springtime, the tomato is more forgiving, the weather is more forgiving, there's ample day length, uh, temperatures are rising, and so there's a forgiving factor there if you miss planting by a week. You don't have that in the fall. Uh, and so that's an important point here is we talk about winter growing, but in reality, I think you and I both know, Matt, it's, it's really fall growing. This is about growing in the month of probably September, October, and then you're harvesting in the winter time. Absolutely. Right. That, right. That's kind of the part of that secret sauce is knowing that is the growers is, is laser focused on having a successful establishment at the right date in the fall. Yeah, Liz's work is top notch, and uh, yeah. you know others have others have shown um, you know a similar phenomenon as you described, and and uh, she did you know Liz and her and her team did that extremely well, and of course it's somewhat influenced by the latitude and other factors on the farm, but point well made that a lost day or a lost two or three four days in the fall has a much has an outsized impact on the final outcome than a lost couple two three days in the spring. Which, which could suggest, for example, go back to one of your earlier points, um, we often feel in the spring like we don't have time to pump the brakes. Like, <laughs> you know, there's just no time to waste. Like, I have to go, I have to go 100 miles an hour. When it, when it may not, I mean, we sit here as academics saying this, and so we have to be careful, but the numbers appear to suggest that that may not be so true. Like, if you don't, if you think you don't have a day to take a soil test or make an amendment or you know, really get things in order uh, because you're worried about losing that day, you know, stop and pause and ask, you know, is that really the case? Because in a month's time, we're going to have more light and higher temperature than what we, than our, frankly, that our crops can deal with, right? That's uh, true. At some level. Whereas it's the opposite in the fall. We're losing it every single day. Yes. Um, yeah. So very, very, very well said. Um, I guess it leads me to, you know, one question I have is, uh, you know, from your, your perspective as an educator and a researcher, uh, you know, a counselor to, to folks in, in different ways. Is there something about this whole transition time that you would really like to know, but um, have yet to be able to sort out? Probably we share some of those same questions, but um, looking, to, looking to hear from you, if you have a, a burning, uh, you know, burning uh, question that you are always curious about, maybe people who are listening here um, have the same one, you know, maybe it's maybe it shared. Uh, maybe they might even have a perspective on the answer. But do you, do you have do you have a question that, that continues to rattle around in your mind about about this transition time? Absolutely. Yeah, it's um, and I don't have it perfectly formulated. So forgive me. But it I the question that I'm 
I'm wrestling with right now, and I'm not even sure I'm equipped to answer is what is going on in the soil, probably biologically, in regards to temperature at this time of year, and how is that affecting nutrient availability for, in this case, tomato crops? And so is there an issue around nitrogen or phosphorus or a couple of my key suspects there that we have some limitations in how much and how that is available to the plant early on. I don't think we're seeing a disease issue. I don't think we're seeing nematodes um, or anything of that nature, but I do think there's some interface between soil temperature, soil microbiology, and plant nutrient availability or plant nutrient uptake. And I'd really love to, to take a deeper dive into that. I'm not a uh, a soil biologist. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking to some, some colleagues for help in, in that question. Uh, but yeah, that's the one that's rattling around in my brain, Matt. That's an interesting one and a very important one because it, I, I think it could be said, and I know uh, that high tunnel soils are unlike any other soils. They're not like, I mean, of course they may have the same, some of the same history and uh, obviously formation as the soils on other parts of the farm. But the moment you put a cover over a, a parcel of land, um, a lot of things change. And uh, as we have been talking about here, you know, certainly the temperature and moisture profiles change. And in so much as temperature and moisture and other factors influence the availability of nitrogen or phosphorus for that matter, or, you know, the base, uh, the basic plant response to, you know, its growing environment, you have the potential to need to have um, a high tunnel production scheme and an open field production scheme, if you will. So if yep. you grow tomatoes outside and you grow tomatoes in a high tunnel, um, you know, what are the differences between the two at this time of year? Do you, do you have a sense of that? I mean, do, do some of the growers that you work with uh, also farm outside and, and do, their, do their fertility and irrigation programs differ? Uh, of course, they're planting at different times, but overall, is there a different approach to crop establishment period, for example, that you've seen? Yeah, um, there, there definitely is. And, and I do work with a lot of people who have both indoor and outdoor production. I would say probably most people work with that both. Um, the, the, one, of the, one of the big differences we see is, is pH management inside. And so our, our pH um, tends to rise inside of tunnels and that doesn't happen to us in the field generally. Um, and so the people who are growing inside, if they want crop health, they need to pay attention to soil pH and soil calcium levels, which of course play a huge influence on pH. Um, <clears throat> And so those growers, again, when I talked about this, this window of opportunity to turn over the soil and make amendments, those indoor growers are going to be ideally be adjusting their pH. And again, generally downward with a material like elemental sulfur um, to keep that pH where it needs to be so that plant nutrients are most available to the crop. The outdoor grower generally doesn't have to worry about that as much. So oftentimes, uh, growers I work with are not just trying to acidify their soil. They're also trying to acidify their irrigation water through ongoing injection of acids. And outdoor growers generally don't have that problem. Our outdoor growers, of course, you've got, uh, you've got more vulnerability in that you don't have the protection of the high tunnel from, uh, from spring weather. Uh, and so. Uh, Including rain. <laughs> yes. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 So, Throws, throws a monkey wrench into the irrigation. Um, well, maybe not a monkey wrench, but it could negate the need for some irrigation anyway. It does, but it also, it, it highlights a, a bit of a, um, 
a weakness in some people's approach to fertility with our, our, our reliance on, on drip irrigation as a delivery uh, method yes. for our nutrients. If your field is saturated uh, and you did not pre-apply any of your, your needed nutrients and you can't irrigate where are your plants going to get their nutrients. Right. Right. Yeah. So we are very, very, we rely a lot on that fertigation uh, yeah. profile. So folks, this is, uh, I just want to, speaking of pumping the brakes, uh, you know, as, as, as I mentioned up front, we have two portions in each of the weekly sessions. There's the interview portion, which you've been listening to uh, so far, uh, the conversation with Judd Reed of, uh, of Cornell University and Extension Vegetable Specialist there. And then there is the Q&A portion. And we'll transition to that Q&A portion here pretty soon. Uh, but before I do so, I want to emphasize that what you've been listening to is a conversation with Judd and I, um, where I've been the one asking the questions, if you will. The Q&A portion is an opportunity for you who are joining us live to, to address questions directly to Judd via myself or Michael and um, make sure that they are addressed. And uh, so we're, we're going to turn the program over to you as the, as the listener pretty soon to, to address questions. Before I do that, I also want to mention that Next week, uh, Katie King of the University of Nebraska will be the host, and she will be speaking with Drs. Mohamed Babadoust and Francesca Rotundo. These two folks are with the University of Illinois and Ohio State University, respectively. They are both plant pathologists. You're going to want to tune in to listen to what they have to say about seed, uh, seed purchasing, uh, selecting, seed starting and seed treatment if need be. And that kind of, I, I had that out of order, you know, selecting the seed, treating the seed if needed and, and starting the seed. And all of this is within the context of season long disease prevention beginning at seeding. You heard Judd say earlier, you know, check, check for pest and disease, uh, certainly pest issues with a green bridge between crops from winter, spring into, into summer crops. You heard him mention that as being a, a key uh, part of that potential secret sauce that they've learned uh, learned how to manage. You definitely want to listen to next week's session on, on, a, on a very related topic to, to that. So, um, Judd, before we wrap up the interview portion, any any final thought on, on this transition topic, um, winter, spring, into summer, that you don't think we've covered adequately and that you really want to kind of give a shout out to bring to people's attention? Uh, sure. One that comes to my mat is, uh, is transplant health. And so uh, as you move towards transplanting, as the growers move towards transplanting, the, the health of that transplant um, is, is really critical to the, the season-long success of your crop. Um, and so oftentimes I see people have grown a set of transplants and for whatever reason they get behind on getting those in the ground. But they've had these transplants now for six, eight, ten weeks. They don't want to throw them away. They want to keep them. But uh, those transplants now, since they're under stress, they've been in a, in, a, in a cell size that's probably too small for them. They begin to set flowers. And then even occasionally I see transplants going on with pollinated um, flowers or fruit right. on them going into the ground. And my experience is that the grower will pay for that for the rest of the season because the plant is, um, is really moving into what we call a generative stage or it's, 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 it's producing fruit and not... Uh, directing energy into building uh, a crop canopy, which then can later on support much larger yields. So focus on, on the, the, the quality of that transplant. And that quality oftentimes is related to age. 
And so you may find yourself, if you're not ready to transplant, needing to pot up those plants, put them into larger, um, larger cell sizes, larger pots so that they can continue to balance root growth with shoot growth uh, and not be forced into flowering too early. Or throw those away, put them on a compost pile and buy some new transplants if you're able to. That would be worth uh, the investment because your yield loss can actually be quite dr uh, drastic if you plant a, a pot bound transplant in my mind. No question. Super well said. I know that last year um, there was a session on that very general topic of, of transplant uh, quality and impacts. And, um, you know, I, I, like, I guess I would just echo what you, what you mentioned. There's, uh, it's really, really problematic if somebody under, underestimates how important the quality of that transplant is going into the warm season crops um, because they will never be, I shouldn't, you know, shouldn't say never, but it's really difficult to overcome the limitations that, that begin with an unhealthy or a low quality transplant. As said in the positive, it makes complete business sense to invest in a really high quality set, a set of high quality transplants, uh, yes. even if it means a few extra dollars and kind of the frustration that comes with not being able to use, use the ones that you said have been hanging around for a while. Your, your wallet will, t will thank you later if, yes. you, <laughs> if you use the high quality transplants. And that's a, that is, again, a good segue into, into next week's conversation when uh, Mohammed and Francesca will talk about, you know, starting seed for sure. Um, but at this point in the program, I'd like to transition to the Q&A, make sure that we have, there's an opportunity for everyone who's on the line to, to post questions in the, in the chat box uh, or any other ways that they come in. Um, if they're, if they're uh, a little bit reluctant or lagging, uh, of course, Judd and I can continue this conversation. There's plenty, plenty oh, to yeah. talk about, but we, we want to definitely give the people who are with us uh, an opportunity to, to post a question or two. Looking at the chat box at the moment, I'm not sure when Michael's uh, next next uh, poll would come up. This might be premature for that, but we do want to uh, we do want to give everyone who connected with us today an opportunity to respond to that in terms of uh, commenting on what they've heard so far. Maybe this is a good bridge from uh, the conversation to to the Q and A portion or, or wrap up. Just take a moment and respond to that poll would be much appreciated. This is a way to keep us honest, if you will. Um, uh, Judd's been a fantastic conversation partner, and really, a really great uh, contributor to the program. Um, and we're not, we're certainly not wrapping up now, as, as have other uh, other guests. But we, we really enjoy the feedback. Judd, there is one uh, as we wait for perhaps other questions to come in, and then we can consider wrapping up if need be. There is another question that uh, it's been on my mind that, that you know some of the people listening may it may resonate with them also. We have had all this discussion about high tunnels. But I know that you've been active and other, other people that you work with have been active. My, my team and I have been active with what we call mid or mesotunnels. Oh, yeah. High, not quite low. They're in between. Um, I know that we're painting with a really broad brush. But, you know, for the people who are not so familiar with those systems, if you might want to give a, a one-minute, you know, synopsis of what a meso or mid-tunnel is. And if you would seriously change anything you've mentioned so far to uh, – reflect what, you know, would be best for mid, mid or meso, mid or mesotonal kind of systems. Sure. Yeah. And I'm, I'm far from an expert on, on those mesotunnels. Um, I know there's a lot of people doing some work on those right now. One of the key differences is that um, in terms of soil management, as I understand it, those mesotunnels, you'd be gathering the plastic at some point in, 
in the fall or at some point during the production cycle, and you'd be allowing rain, snow to move through that soil profile. So hopefully you would not accumulate some of the problems that we see um, accumulating in full-blown high tunnels where generally the plastic is up year round. Um, and again, I focus a lot on, on pH and, and calcium, but there's other ones as well. Um, so those mesotunnels, I think, offer a good compromise in terms of, of being a halfway point between a high tunnel and, and, and field production that you're going to get some precipitation moving through the soil profile, which is very helpful for pH management, but for other things as well, I think as well. Um, yeah, I'm kind of curious um, about the the return on investment with these mesotunnels. And I don't, I don't mean to sound uh, challenging or, or skeptical, uh, at least not overly so, but I think one of the benefits we see with high tunnels is that the, the return on investment is generally there in terms of increased yield or season extension, being able to market spinach in December and January, uh, being able to harvest tomatoes a month earlier than you would outside at a time when price is high getting away from uh, a very intensive fungicide program because we're keeping the foliage dry. So there's all these very tangible, uh, quantifiable benefits to the high tunnel that have repeatedly been shown to, to provide that return on investment. And so for the mesotunnels, I'm curious, um, are those benefits going to be great enough to, to justify those inputs? Because it is a fair amount of inputs compared to a low tunnel, a low tunnel being just simple, um, uh, row cover and, and, and wire hoops, which is very low investment. And, and again, the return on that is, is oftentimes demonstrable. So that, that'll be curious. That'll be interesting for me to see is can the, the people doing that work show that return on investment for the mesotunnels? Always has to pay. Must yes. always pay. After all, we're here. Uh, I mean, recreational growing is absolutely fine. <laughs> it's, it's entirely, entirely reasonable and, and justifiable. But for many, you know, they're looking for that adequate return on investment. We do have two quick, two questions that came into us uh, in the meantime, and we'll take them one at a time. The first has to do with air and soil heating, and the person's asking if soil heating has been adequately test, tested in high tunnel environments, and what's the gist of the, you know, gist of the message there, at least from your perspective. Okay, so the the first uh, question there is a simple one: Has it been adequately researched? I think the answer is no. I think there's a, a lot uh, of room there for investigation. Um, so, and to get back to our first point, the first question could be, uh, does, it, does it pay? Does this make sense? Because you've got an installation fee and now you've got an energy fee as well associated with it. Somehow you're going to be heating, let's say tubes in the soil. Mm -hmm. and, and what is that investment cost? There are a lot of people who've done work on this. I don't mean to say that there hasn't been work done on it. Uh, but is there sufficient work on it? I don't think so. Um, so I, I would, I would really like to see more work done on that. Uh, and then the question is, what are you going to evaluate? Is it going to be a set temperature? Is it going to be uh, placement of say heating coils? Is it going to be timing of heating of the soil? Is, uh, what crop are you going to evaluate? What other technologies are you going to combine with heating the soil? Are you going to use row cover on top of the heated soil? Um, are you going to inflate a layer over top of the high tunnel? Are you going to use fans to keep your, your, your heat down close to the crop canopy? There's a lot of research questions there yet. There are enough people, particularly 
private growers who've done work on this that I believe there's an argument there that there's certainly an application. Um, there's some benefits to that. Yeah, I would concur. We've done, a, in, my, in my team, we've done a number of experiments with soil heating and it's, uh, That's we great. call active soil heating um, on a very, very small scale, uh, either alone or in combination with what we call passive heating with just using row covers or um, floating row covers or, or low tunnels. I think Matt, for another, go ahead. Did, didn't you have a graduate student present on this maybe last year? Yeah, yeah. So it's been an active area of research for us for what we call that fall to spring harvest market period. And, you know, where, what role does soil heating play there, if any, at least at our latitude and our, in our situation, working with unheated single yep. layer high tunnels. That's something that maybe could, maybe could be discussed at another time. But I would say overall, what we, what we and others have demonstrated fairly reliably is that you can get enhanced growth with modest amounts of soil heating. But as Judd has pointed out, the questions abound. Okay, logistically, how do you do that in a real farming situation um, where people put things in the ground like spades and trowels and other things that they would be cutting lines uh, left and right if they if they were shallow enough? Um, and of course, does it pay? I think it's just something that, uh, at least from my point of view, Judd has has uh, said it best: high potential or you know interesting potential, but it definitely needs to be tested. And for farmers who have done, who, some farmers that I know who have done it. And worked out the kinks. They they swear by it. Sure, but that's uh, that's just something that they you know they pretty much made a, a bit of a cause, if you will. Yeah. Um, as we look towards uh, the end of the program, but we do have a couple more questions, Judd. If you have time, yep. real fast. One has to do with anaerobic soil disinfestation um, and its possible role in uh, preparing the soil for uh, spring crops. In other words, can it be done in the fall? For example, the specific question is: Can it be done in the fall? in preparation for the spring crops. Um, before I give you a chance to, uh, to answer, I'll just mention there's a lot written and said about anaerobic soil disinfestation. If uh, we don't cover it all in this particular discussion, there are resources to, to um, uh, take advantage of. Contact Judd or me. We'll be glad to point you in the right direction. But Judd, what's your take on ASD in the fall for spring crops? I am really not qualified to, to answer okay. It's 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 a it's an intriguing idea to me. Um, I, I'm I'm aware of the concept on a cursory level. I'm not doing work in it myself. I would I would ask though if we're disinfesting the soil, um, obviously of pathogens, mm -hmm. disinfest, disinfesting it of uh, of our beneficial microorganisms as well. I'm not sure I quite understand the concept there. And then so so there's I'll piggyback on a yep. on a recent high tunnel if it's okay real fast. Yeah, please. Um, we just completed a high tunnel, we meaning uh, some of us here at OSU completed a high tunnel school. And one of the last sessions was on ASD. Okay. Um, it was delivered by Dr. Anna Teston, who's now here with USDA. That whole re recording of that whole session is, is on a YouTube channel, which I can, I can share with people who are interested. But again, I'm not the pathologist. <laughs> right. ASD, it requires the soil to go temporarily anaerobic. And in the process, it can suppress the, the levels, uh, the, the populations of, of pathogens, typical pathogens. It actually can suppress weeds as well, but it requires a carbon source and it requires time. And it typically requires the use of sun as the, as the uh, energy input. So I'm a bit dubious on the possibility of using it in the fall, just because there may not be enough sun and for long periods of time, enough period of time. But again, I'm not the expert either, but I, I really appreciate the question I, on ASD. And as I mentioned before, there, there are resources on it. So if, uh, 
uh, you can contact Jeremy and I'm sure we can get you get you connected with those. And then there's one final question before we wrap up and that has to do with soil temperature again. And uh, this, this person is asking if uh, somebody is using organic amendments versus synthetic ones, does the role of soil temperature impact or does soil temperature impact them differently? What is your, what is your take there? Absolutely. Um, great question. And so our, our organic uh, amendments, particularly focus on nitrogen, um, are generally require soil mineralization uh, to convert the uh, nitrogen source, whether that's an alfalfa meal or a peanut meal or a soy meal or, or, or some uh, organic source of nitrogen into a, a form available to the plant, generally a nitrate form of nitrogen. Um, and like a lot of things in the soil, it is uh, that process is driven by temperature. And so even though we may apply a sufficient level of nitrogen in an organic form, if it goes into a cold soil, the mineralization of that nitrogen is not happening. It's in a form that the plant isn't able to access it. Uh, and so you may need to provide a more readily available form of nitrogen to create a bridge until the point where the soil is actively mineralizing uh, your other nitrogen input. An example of that would be blood meal. And so blood meal is uh, a 12-0-0 is 12% nitrogen, and most of that nitrogen is already uh, in a form available to plants. And so I wouldn't want to rely on that uh, as 100% of my nitrogen by any means, but a little bit uh, to bridge that gap until the other nitrogen sources are mineralized can can help transplants in an organic soil. Yeah, there is a, uh, agreed, there, there is a difference in uh... Um, thank you for laying that out. John, we have one additional question. <laughs> the, no string is, the, the string is unbroken, so it's, it's fantastic. And this is actually on a topic that I think more and more people are taking a harder and harder look at and um, within the general area of soil health or soil productivity in high tunnel. This person is asking if no-till or limited-till methods have a place in high tunnel production. And what are, if that, if, if true, you know, what are the significant considerations or results of any testing. We have, of course, limited till uh, approaches uh, common in field situations, perhaps less so in vegetable production, but yeah. they, they do work. Do they apply in a high tunnel setting? You know, I'm a horrible person to ask this because my my current research is focused around cover crops and and we're we're tilling in those cover crops. So we're we're addicted to tillage as they say right now. But I yeah. do I I I recognize I think what's probably the premise of the, of the question there, which is no till um, it contributes to a number of soil uh, quality parameters. And so I think the, the, where I see the most no-till or reduced tillage probably is a better way to put it going on in high tunnels um, is situations where there's number one, very high organic matter inputs, specifically compost. And so that your weed pressure is very low to begin with. Um, and uh, people are not using plastic mulch uh, so there, there's not this constant bed formation going on. And so you have more semi-permanent beds or growing areas that are constantly being replenished with organic matter. And then people use these broad forks, which are these, these um, just that, they're large forks that kind of allow you to loosen the soil without flipping it in as a mold bore plow or a, a tiller would. So, uh, and Elliot Coleman in, in Maine is, has really been one of the champions of that approach. I think that's the, the most practical implementation of reduced tillage that I've seen. In our work, we're not using, um, we're not using a moldboard plow, but we are using a chisel plow, which is a fairly intense form of tillage, but I think it's a more beneficial form of tillage in that we're 
ideally breaking up some um, some plow pans when we do that, but that requires some horsepower too. Yeah, no doubt that the, at least in, you know, for many, the maintaining the productivity of the soil in that tunnel, you know, here we've been talking about, is it four season? Is it, you know, main season production? Bottom line is most people are, and I know you've done some excellent work with container production in high tunnels for people that maybe at a point where they need that. But uh, for the most part, most high tunnel users are growing in the soil that they covered with the tunnel. And that, that relationship there, that, that marriage, if you will, of the high tunnel with that parcel of soil is meant to be a very long-term one. And uh, so doing it, you know, taking the appropriate steps to maintain the health and productivity of that soil is really important. And for some, that might mean just, you know, disturbing it less often or less yes. aggressively. Yep. Um, and, how that, and how that can be done in a vegetable production context uh, continues to be a, a bit of a pretzel to unwind, if you will, uh, yeah. not to crack. Um, so folks, I want to remind you that we've been talking with uh, Dr. Judd Reed of Cornell University, um, terrific input on and his hearing his terrific input on the transition from essentially a wintertime, springtime, uh, following cover cropping or cash cropping situation to a warm season one in our high tunnels. Next week, we get to hear uh, Katie King and uh, Mohamed Babadus and Francesca Rotundo address the question of seed selection, treatment, and starting. Uh, all very timely topics uh, and, a, and a perfect takeoff from the one we just left. And um, I'll mention that it's at the same time, 12.30 p.m. Eastern, 11.30 a.m. Central, at the same place where you connected today. Um, so I wish you well and uh, look forward to seeing you in the future. Great. Thank you, Matt. It's a thank you for having me. It's, it's been a privilege. Thank you. Today's podcast is brought to you by Boyshood Greenhouses, the only winter-produced vegetables fortified by the power of boys' choir. As you know, winter greenhouse crops need both heat and CO2, and the Boys' Hood Choir provides both with the hot, breathy, dulcet tones of the Rolling Stones. Filling the wintry void with Pink Floyd. We don't need no education. And belting out that Pat Benatar song all night long. We belong to the light, we belong to the thunder. We Enjoy the superior quality of boys' hood vegetables this year. It's not noise, it's boys! Whatever we deny or embrace, for worse or for better.